to the sound guys everywhere I go. At Grace Emanuel, they actually have it taped on so I can't even move it if I wanted to. And they just hand it to me and that's it. Because if I can mess it up, I will mess it up. Good to be back uh, with you all again. Excited for the new year. And diving into this text isn't the greatest, most exciting subject. The book of Second Peter is about overcoming apostasy. He is on his deathbed. He's at the end of his life. He says in verses 12 through 15 that he uh, knew that shortly he was going to put off his tabernacle, his body. He knew that his time was short. And, and so his reminder, let me just read verses 12 through 15. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it me, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. I mean, he is not wanting them to miss this. And so he is aware of the danger of apostasy. He had experienced one of the twelve, one of his closest friends in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Judas, depart from the faith entirely. Most of us, if we have been in church for any uh, amount of time, have likely had the experience where those who maybe even in our own family professed Christ and then at some point absolutely deny the faith and walk away. Uh, the Bible uh, warns us of this. It says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 that before Christ returns, there is going to be a falling away or an apostasy first. And so we see this in our day, not just in our churches, in our families, among our young people many times. Uh, the recivity rate of young people growing up in church, and once they get out and after their first year of college is very high. Some say as high as 80% that depart from Christianity and never return. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons for that. But this is a subject that Peter on his deathbed was very concerned about and wanted to continually remind them about how to overcome apostasy. Peter himself, if you remember, turn back to Luke chapter 22. Here the disciples are in the upper room carrying on a very theological discussion about which of them would be the greatest. Not exactly connected to what was all going on there. But if you remember, right after that discussion, in Luke 22 and verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. 
When you come out of that experience, Peter, be someone who strengthens and feeds my lambs, feeds the sheep, and strengthens them. And that is the essence of what Second Peter is, and really First Peter. But then he goes on, and remember Peter's response. And he said unto him, Lord, you got the wrong guy this time. You don't realize I am ready to go with you both into prison and to death. You told us a while back to count the cost, and I counted that cost, and I've already decided if that happens, I'm going with you. And if you read in the other Gospels, in Matthew, I believe it is, Peter says, if all men forsake you, not this guy. And Jesus said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt three times deny that you know me. Now think about that. Peter, on this night, takes the Lord's Supper as it's instituted with Jesus Christ himself. With the apostles, celebrating the Passover, goes up into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with Christ in the flesh. And he tells him, Peter, before your alarm clock rings in the morning, you're going to deny that you even know who I am. So Peter has firsthand experience of what it means, the danger of apostasy, the danger of self-confidence, the danger of trusting that, no, I would, you just don't know me. I, of all people, would not do that. And so that is why he takes it very serious to warn the disciples in 2 Peter, chapter 2 is all types of false teaching and their strategies and how they do it, that there will be false teachers among you. You remember the Apostle Paul on his deathbed, or not his deathbed, but when he saw the Ephesian elders for the last time in Acts chapter 20, he said, I know that after my departing grievous wolves shall enter in, you'll see my face no more, but I commend you to God and to the word of His grace." That's exactly what Peter does here is he, he pleads with them to establish their faith, a living faith, on the inspired Word of God. We live in a time when apostasy is common. I could go through a list of famous people, famous pastors, pastors' wives, I uh, recently, you, uh, maybe you, I don't know if the name Joshua Harris means anything to you, but he was one of the foremost leaders of the Gospel Coalition, together for the Gospel, leaders of one of the core original five or six churches, pastored for nine years. He was the author of the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Well, he has since departed and renounced Christianity and is writing the book, 
I kissed Christianity goodbye. All done. No longer consider myself a Christian. I'm sure you've heard of John Piper, one of the most famous pastors of our time. His oldest son, Abraham, now makes his living on his TikTok and podcasts and all of his boldly declaring his rejection of the gospel and of Christianity. That's his identity. We use this text in 2 Peter 1 as kind of a proof text for the doctrine of inspiration, but don't really necessarily grasp the context in which it's in. So hopefully we can bring that out tonight as we look as Peter is trying to help them overcome apostasy, even the text that uh, our brother read in our call to worship tonight, to them that overcome. To them that overcome. How many times does he say that to the, each of the seven churches in Revelation? To them that overcome, I give this. Not those that fall away. In this book, it's just a very short book, three chapters. In this theme of overcoming apostasy, in the first half of chapter 1, he focuses on their growth, diligently adding to your faith. And then he gives a grocery list of things to add. And he says, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you will not be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. That's what he's worried about. That they would fall and in pleading with them, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That was his desire. That when you come to the the gates of that new Jerusalem, it is an abundant entrance where they open the doors and bring it on in. And then in the second half, he gives them the grounds of their assurance. So chapter 1, he's explaining to them how to have a genuine assurance of salvation so they wouldn't fall. Chapter 2, he gives them an awareness of false teachers and describes them and gives an explanation of them and a warning that there will be false teachers among you. He says in verse 1, and many will follow them. And then in chapter 3, the anticipation and hope of the Lord's return as the encouragement to not turn back. Why would you turn back? If you're waiting for Christ to return, where else are you going to go, as he said in another place? Christ has the words of eternal life. Who has a better offer? If you really believe that, where else are you going to go? Who else has a better 
offer than eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so he warns them and reminds them, and the scoffers are going to come saying, hey, where is his coming? I thought he was coming back. Could go off on that with... Anyway, that's a whole other rabbit trail. I probably don't want to go down that one. And so as we look at our text, as he's trying to plead with them to overcome apostasy, he wants their faith to be grounded. What do we want to ground our faith in? Where does the assurance come from? To ground means to fix or set on a foundation. Webster says, faith grounded on scriptural evidence to fix it firmly. See, foundation work is not glamorous work. It's the hardest part of the whole job to dig the foundation. I had a builder friend of mine one time explain, I'm not a builder nor the son of a builder. But he said, if you're off an inch at the foundation, you'll be off a foot at the peak. That the foundation has to be square. Because if you're like me, you just kind of keep cobbling it together and cobbling it together. If I'm off an inch at the foundation, I'm off three feet at the peak. So I don't do building. But this was the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He said it in Ephesians 3. And then also in Colossians 2 and verse 7. He said this. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. See, the reason that we need to be rooted and grounded and established on the foundation is because when the hurricane comes... As Jesus testified at the judgment, but even in this life, when the hurricane hits, you better be grounded, lest as soon as that rain falls, the the, the house fall flat on itself. Our foundation is going to be tested. I've had conversations with two young guys in the last three days. Friends of mine, I say young guys, they're in their 40s, but I'm a young guy. It's just, yeah. And they're going separately. They're friends of mine I've known for a while. Are going through absolute crisis. Absolute crisis of their faith. One uh, just lost his brother, who was in his early 40s. And just the, the... the, the realization, the shock that that was to him. The other one is losing his marriage in a devastating way. The ground underneath them is moving. And my plea to them is cling to the rock. Cling to the, the hurricane is hitting now. You have nowhere else to go. I have nothing else to help you with as this unfolds in your life, but you need to grab a hold of the rock and you better hang on with all you have. And they're both have asked me in the last two days, one this morning, 
emailed me at 6 o'clock in the morning. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Right? The, the waves are crashing. And I pointed him to this passage that I had been studying and said, you need to get into this text. You need to get into the Scriptures. And you need to be diligently adding to your faith. And you need to hang on for dear life. The other young man, I talked to him Saturday, or I talked to him Friday first, and he got off the phone and he downed a bottle of prescription pills. Survived. Talked to him the next day. This is not good. I realize you are in a crisis, but this is, you are on the edge of eternity, leaning over it. And I'm not seeing you hanging on to the rock of ages. I'm just that kind of friend. (laughs) What else do you do? We need to be grounded and rooted. I love fruit trees. I, I get them for my birthday every year and plant them no matter where I'm at. Kids say, what should we get for you? Just buy me some fruit trees. We can always use more fruit trees. And it's amazing to me that you put these things down into the ground and and somehow they grow and produce fruit that's sweet. But I was thinking, how do those fruit trees grow? I mean, those roots are pushing through the soil and rocks and, and expanding their root system out and absorbing and are grounded. They probably don't grow more than a millimeter a day. But what happens after a hundred days? Is there a hundred millimeters out there? What happens after a thousand days? They just keep pushing and growing. And that's often what it takes. We know of Psalm 1, that blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Is that what describes your relationship with the Word of God? Day and night, I am revolving it in my mind. I'm chewing on it. I'm digesting it. I'm living on it. Because man cannot live by bread alone, but by the Word of God. From everything we know about Peter, does he strike you as the patient guy with the daily routine, taking baby steps? Right? That's not Peter. But he's learned. He's learned in his life that I can't do it in my own strength. And so Peter desires to strengthen them, come to a full assurance of faith, be grounded on the Word of God. Lloyd Jones says, How can we know that these things are true? What foundation? What basis do we have? What confidence for believing and accepting the things that we've heard? What is your foundation? Why do you think they're true? Well, this is where Peter says, verse 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. I'm not just telling you stories. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I didn't just make up and give you a fable. What does he say? But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I have seen him. The Apostle John says, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have handled, we've touched him. That's the one we declare unto you, that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand the things that we profess to believe? They sound nuts. We believe that God became a man and died and took our sin upon Him. We just sang it. You guys are all nuts. You're singing it on a Sunday evening. We believe that He rose from the dead and that I am going to live forever. Hallelujah. What is our faith founded and grounded upon? What basis and what confidence do you have for believing and accepting these things as fact? Right? What happens when people depart from the faith? What happens? Go watch Barnabas Piper on his videos. Mock the Word of God. Yeah, I used to believe those things. So Peter pleads with us to ground your faith on the inspired Word of God. That grounding doesn't mean just learn a few verses in Sunday school. That means living on the Word of God. Like that person in Psalm 1 who meditates in God's Word day and night. And how does it describe him? with a constant source of life, like a tree by the river of water, always has a source, and fruitful. We need to cultivate, it's one of my prayers for my children, that they would love God's Word. It's often the prayer of my own soul that, God, you would give me a love for your word. I can't explain it. It's a supernatural how God's word can feed your soul. But I do know what it's like to starve from it. And it's terrible. So Peter responds. He says there's number two points tonight. Number one, an apostolic witness. We were eyewitnesses. Not only eyewitnesses, but he says we were earwitnesses. I don't know if I've ever heard that term, but I was thinking about that on the drive over. We, what did they hear? We heard God speak from heaven. Any of you heard that? I hope not. <laughs> Right? We heard God speak. We were there on that holy mount. We saw Him in all of His majesty. I haven't seen that. He says, I've seen Him, and we received from, when He received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Peter says, I'm giving you apostolic testimony. I've seen Christ in His glory. 
And if you read the account in Matthew and in Mark, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. I mean, they weren't thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. Where'd that come from? They hit the deck. And when Jesus came, he touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. They, all they did was heard his voice, and their response was hit the deck. He wanted their faith to be grounded. And he gives this account. Only Peter and James and John were allowed to see this and experience this. You remember Peter? Lord, they, they see Moses and Elijah. I try to picture that, and the closest I can get is Star Wars. That's the generation I grew up in when, when Darth Vader's there, and it's Sunday night I can get away with this with, just quickly. If you know what I mean, the scene. But he sees Elijah and Moses, and Peter's like, man, let's build a tent. <laughs> let's set up camp. Let's dwell here for a little bit. And they just ignored him. But he says, we declared unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, is that a settled fact in your mind that Jesus Christ is coming again? I had a mentor one time say, I, I don't even think you can be a Christian if you don't believe that. You have to believe he's coming again. It is more sure that Jesus Christ is coming back than that you will get out of bed in the morning. There's no guarantee of that. But there is a guarantee that Jesus Christ is coming again. Peter had personally walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for three years. He had seen Christ transfigured in all of His glory. He had heard the voice of God the Father speak from heaven and commend His Son. But he didn't see himself as in a, a special category. He opens the letter. He says, I, there's a, I have a like precious faith with you. But then notice what he says there in verse 18. 19, excuse me. Despite all of those experiences that none of us have had, he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. You have something that is better than that. Think about that for a minute. Because you have the inspired word of God. I don't know about you, but I'm of the age now where I'm starting to, memories are fading. I just got together with my three brothers, which is always a hoot. Uh, no fights broke out. My wife commented that there was no foot races this time, which is always a win. Uh, but we got into this discussion about a, a basketball coach when we were in high school and what happened to this situation and this coach. And the three of us are sitting there, the other brother wasn't a part of it, 
trying to figure out who was the coach what year and what happened that year and what team. And we couldn't piece that thing together with three of us who were on the team, who knew the coaches, and we're trying to piece that all back together. And, and it just, my brother's still texting me today. He, he was contacting other people. We're still trying to figure out what happened. We know that a coach was fired and somebody quit, and, and we couldn't remember who came first and who came second. See, even eyewitness testimony isn't reliable. I know when I get in an argument with my wife, nothing of what I saw actually happened. <laughs> she can tell me what color shirt I was wearing, where I was standing, what I said, the tone I said it with. She has a better memory than I do. But do you understand, we have a more sure word. That's Peter's argument. Then, then even all of that eyewitness testimony, that your faith, number two, is on the authoritative Word of God. That is what your faith is in. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The object of your faith is what God has said. The inspired Scriptures. More valuable than eyewitness testimony or hearing someone speak, hearing God speak, excuse me. You ever been in an argument trying to establish facts? You know the worst you want evidence you want to present in those cases is, well, I heard somebody say. I remember it was said. Right? They call that hearsay. <laughs> but what if you can produce the document in writing? Right? Even after we reach a verbal agreement with somebody, what do we always follow that up with? Could I get that in writing? Can I get you to write that down? Why? So I have evidence. Look at all the promises and prophecies in the Scriptures. Point to one promise that God gave in the Scriptures that He broke. Right? It reminds me of Hebrews where he talks about the anchor of our soul, steadfast and sure, you know where it's, I think it's chapter 2. Oh, I can't find it. Where he says we, we have not only God's Word, but His oath and His promise. I mean, he's just heaping on testimony. The God that cannot lie promised before the world began. All these things were written aforetime that through patience and comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. Called in another place, exceeding great and precious promises. I mean, three chapters into our Bible, God says that the woman's seed is going to crush the serpent's head. And how many years later, thousands of years later, did that happen? Just like He said. Spurgeon said this, if I heard a voice speaking from the sky, I would obey it. But the form in which your call has come has been better than that. 
For Peter in his second epistle tells us that he himself heard a voice out of the excellent glory when he was with our Lord in the holy mount. But he adds, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. As if the testimony which is in the word of God, the light that shineth in a dark place which beams forth from the word of God, was more sure than even the voice which he heard from heaven. That's why the scripture he goes on to say, whereunto you do well that you take heed. You do well if you obey God's word. Right? We remember James tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. What's that next phrase? Deceiving your own selves. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Hearing the Word of God, doing the Word of God, you do well to take heed to what God's Word says. Right? We're Baptists. We believe that. It's a good thing to get into the Scriptures, find out what God has to say about you, about your life and your situation, apply it, examine it, understand what God is saying, and then I need to do that. I'll give you the cheat sheet. It's usually the thing you don't want to do. That in your flesh, you're thinking, no, I don't want to do that. That sounds humbling and hard, and that, that just doesn't sound like anything I want to do. But to take heed means to give careful, earnest, believing attention with diligence. Lloyd-Jones says, hold on to the prophecies, study them diligently, spend your time with them, be governed by them, meditate always upon them. Getting into God's Word. See, it's not just enough to read God's Word, that's a good thing. It's not just enough to hear God's Word, that's a but to study it, not just to know doctrine, but to get all the way to the point where I'm obeying it. To apply the Word of God to our lives and change the way we think and the way we act and shape what we do. Let me ask you tonight, how is God's Word shaping your behavior how is it reproving you and correcting you and instructing you and telling you how to handle things and what to do and what not to do? One of the first sermons I ever preached, I think maybe the first, was out of Luke 6. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Just the contradiction of that. And then also in James, as I mentioned, Psalm 119, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. See, as humans, we're, we're too prone to deceive ourselves. We're too prone to convince ourselves of things that just aren't accurate. I was reading recently, there was a diet study where for one month... They gave this group of people that were going to do this study. They asked them to write down in journal everything they ate. Everything you put in your mouth, just write it down. You can eat whatever you want, just write it down. 
Write down the time that you had it and what you ate. I ate a Snickers candy bar, a king size, had two of them, 2.30, right? Quarter ice cream, whatever, whatever you put in your mouth, just write it. That doesn't sound too hard, does it? So they had this group, and they took them through for a month. They had them journal everything that they ate. For the second month, all they did was follow their journal and give them exactly what they said they ate for the first month at the same time and the same day for the second month. And every single participant lost weight the second month. Because even in journaling it, they couldn't quite, they just kind of couldn't put it on there as exactly as it was. How should we heed the word? What does Peter say? As unto a light that shines in a dark place. Isn't that us today? Is there a lot of light out there that you're hearing about compared to the light of the Scriptures? Would you want to be someone without Christ out there trying to find your way today? I was reading a story. I'm a a fan of World War II. I love all those documentaries. And they were talking about a, a pilots that were coming back trying to find the aircraft carrier, carrier. But the aircraft carrier was commanded to go dark because there was other submarines in the area, and so they're completely dark. And these pilots, as they were flying around, are pleading with them, just give us a match. Just give us a match, and we can find it. We'll see it. But because they were commanded and because of the danger of the submarine, they, they couldn't even light a match. And so they just drove around until they ran out of fuel. How valuable, just a small light. I think this should be an encouragement to us as things get gloriously dark. We don't have to be the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. If we can just hold up a light in a dark place and say, man, we found the answer to eternal life. We found it. Just like Andrew bringing his brother Peter, we found the Messiah. We found him. You've got to come see him. You're not going to believe this. It's a dark place. He's the only person you can't talk about in school. Is that right? You can talk about Muhammad. You can talk about Buddha. You can teach an expanded lesson on it. But there's one name, and it just happens to be the name which is above every name. And it just happens to be the name that there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's the only name you can't mention openly. And we won't be doing any, any sections of study on them. There's no light in a dark place. His book is the only book you aren't allowed to study in college. 
You can take religion classes, but they're just not going to get into this book. They'll get into all kinds of books about the book, but they won't get into this book. And yet he's the only light of the world. And they're afraid of him exposing their darkness. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And yet the Scriptures to the believer are a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And we are to be a people of the book. Not listening to the counsel of the ungodly. And how long should we do this? Notice what he says. Until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. You know what that day is? Until Christ brings the full light and eliminates the darkness forever. The day star there is the morning star. I didn't know this. This was helpful study, reading the commentaries. It's the planet Venus. And apparently it appears, and I'm not often up out looking at the stars, certainly not early in the morning, but it appears in the east right before dawn because it's the only thing that the, the light of the sun reflects on Venus before it cracks over the surface of the earth. And so you can see, when you see Venus, you know the sun is on its way and it's just about to crest. See the word picture there? And he says, when you see, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, we need to follow the light of the Scriptures and God's Word that He's given us. That's why the Scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are changed from glory to glory. We see Christ. The Scriptures are just a day star. There's a reflection of Christ in His Word. But oh, the day when the living Word is there. When there will be no need of the sun because the glory of God will be the light. And that's why Peter says, knowing this first, no prophecy of the Scripture, that didn't come by anybody's own idea. They didn't generate that themselves. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and that's why you can trust it. Kelvin said this, they did not blab their inventions of their own accord or according to their own judgments. The Spirit of God inspired them. Sproul, I believe it is, said this, private interpretation always carries with it the heavy burden of accurate interpretation. That being said, I do not think that was Peter's point. If we look at the statement in context, because we use this verse as a proof text for inspiration, and they used it against the Catholic Church to say, you know, it's no private interpretation. But the real point of it is inspiration, and he says, it is not the interpretation of the Bible, but the authority of the Bible that Peter is talking about. 
He is saying that the prophecy, that is the declaration of the Word of God, did not arise out of the private insight or judgment of human beings. Peter means that the content of the Word of God does not arise by human will. Its origin and authority are found in God alone. And that is why we have a more sure word, is because it's inspired by God. It comes into being, same word there used of John 1.12, when it says, we become the children of God. Lloyd-Jones says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture originates or arises as the result of any private determination. Nobody decided, you know what, I should write some Scripture today. I often wonder, when they were writing it down, did they know, like, I would assume that they did, like, hey, this is not my normal stuff here, this is pretty good. (laughs) And then the explanation of that, verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Beloved, God has spoken. He's given it to us, inspired word to feed your souls. So what should we do with it? What should our relationship be with this book? It's the new year. Good time for Bible reading plans and starting over. If you're not a Bible reading plan person, it will be evident, just like it's evident, I can tell when I watch my kids eat which one's about to grow. Because they eat their food, the brother sitting next to them food, and then they go in and ask mom if there's any more food and can they have a snack. And you say... Don't know a lot, but I do know that child's about ready to hit a growth spurt. I don't need to see your plan, but I do know that if you are digesting the Scriptures and living and feeding on the Scriptures, I know what's going to happen. You can see it in a church. As you look across and you see someone who consistently, day and night, is in God's Word, they are going to grow. God is going to start blowing up their life, typically, and reforming it and sanctifying it and changing it. And so I ask you, what is your relationship with this book? Examine yourselves as we go into the new year and say, how's my relationship with the Scriptures? Am I being fed in my soul by them? Has it gotten dry? I just encourage people... Be honest with God. What a profound concept, right? God, I'm not feeling it today. God, help me because I don't really want to read your word today. And you all look at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. I get there. Sometimes, all right, and I have to go back and say, okay, what's just like I do with my kids when they're not hungry for dinner? My kids are always hungry for dinner. Well, let's go check the snack drawer and see if that's taken a hit. Oh, look at here. All the, all the snacks are gone. Right? And so we have to evaluate our appetite and say, what is robbing my appetite for God's Word? 
And there's plenty of opportunities for that. We have a light in this dark world that is an infallible guide. You know, one time, right when GPS came out, I got a new one for Christmas. Maybe my birthday, because my birthday's in March. And so I was out fishing Lake Huron with my dad. I had this new handheld GPS, crazy technology back in the 90s, like, what in the world? We put in the waypoint as we went out of Oscoda, put the waypoint in right at the mouth. So if it gets foggy, because on the east side, you have to go out about seven miles before you hit the shelf before it drops down where the fish are at. So you're out there a ways. And then we fished all day, and it was time to come back in. And I could see this bright light. And I'm looking at this GPS, and it's telling me to go way over there. Like, that's insane. This thing is junk. doesn't know what it's talking about. Can't they? I mean, it's right there. And my dad's kind of in my ear like dads are. And, and so me being the docile, obedient child I do, I head to the light. <laughs> I head to what I can see. I mean, it's right there. So we're driving. Of course, it's deceptive over water how far. We drive several miles back in. And would you believe when I got there, I wasn't at our port. I was at Tawas. <laughs> if you know the map, that's south several miles. And then I had to turn around. And the whole trip from Tawas to Ascoda, I had my dad chirping in my ear. Why'd you buy that thing if you're not going to listen to it? I mean, it told you where to go. And, now and just chirping in my ear as a good dad would do. And I often think about that as so often we, we know what the Word of God says, but boy, we just think we kind of see something a little different, a little better. And then guess what happens at the end of it? Nope, you know what? It was right again. I was wrong and it was right. Who, who knew? See, the inspiration of Scripture is of no value if God didn't preserve the Scriptures. And if He inspired the guys, but He didn't give it to us, well, then that's no good. The preservation of Scripture is no value if we don't read the Scriptures. It doesn't do you any good if you don't read them. And to read the Scriptures is of not no value, I would say of little value if we don't obey the Scriptures and go into God's Word humbly, asking Him to instruct us from Your Word not to lean on our own understanding. I close with that. How is your relationship with the Scriptures? You know, I can tell you there was a period about five, six years ago, maybe more than that now, where I had some significant ministry discouragement. I just, I literally uttered the phrase, I'm going fishing. <laughs> like, I, I've just had enough of this. And I had resigned a position and was kind of just discouraged and all manner of things. And my wife, as good wives do, was giving me the business about, you know, I don't see you in the Scriptures like I used to. 
you know, when you're preaching every Sunday, you gotta you live there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't I don't need that right now. I have enough scriptures in my head. I can quote to you books of the Bible. I don't really need to now you all are looking at me like I expected that you would look at me like like what are you thinking? Like, what are you thinking? Don't you realize how... But I was, when you're in that frame of mind, you're just thinking, what is this? I wasn't against the Bible. I just, it wasn't like what I needed right now. Well, God just has a way of getting you to the place where you need it right now. It didn't take very long. And, you st- and I, I look back on that time and think, how foolish was I? And the scripture that God used was, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You can't survive. Not even the bread that, if you understand the context of that, not, it wasn't the bread, the manna from heaven that was keeping them alive. It was God's word keeping them alive. So I challenge you as you go into a new year, hopefully better than the last, maybe worse. That you get into the Scriptures, you make a commitment to read the Scriptures, meditate on the Scriptures, dive into the Scriptures, not five minutes a day. That'll keep you barely alive. But digesting them and saturating your mind with the Scriptures. And if you do that, I guarantee it'll be a good year. I guarantee it. Because God pronounces a blessing upon those who meditate in His Word day and night. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You have given us such a certain Word that we can place our confidence and ground our faith in and believe with all of our heart. We thank You for the inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration of Scripture, all those doctrines we believe. Well, God, help us to practice those by how we value and digest and meditate in Your Word. I pray that You would give us a hunger for Your Word every day, that it would be insatiable, that we would love Your Word that we would desire to meditate in it day and night, that it would be more than our necessary food, that You would feed our souls, and that, God, You would be glorified in the transformation as You sanctify us through Your truth. God, help us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.